0: This is Macro Horizons, Episode 157, Forecasting Air presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 7th. And in addition to being NFP Day, Friday was also National Thank-A-Mail Carrier Day, Wear Red Day, Stuffed Mushroom Day, Homemade Soup Day, and National Bubblegum Day. Just something to chew on over the weekend.
1: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
0: Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market had a variety of fundamental inputs to absorb. And as a result, we have seen a steady bearishness occur into the end of the week with 10 and two year yields setting cycle highs. Now, this is very consistent with the setup for next week's refunding auctions, but it's more a function of the strength of the payrolls report. Headline non-farm payrolls for the month of January printed at plus 467,000, and there were net revisions to the two prior months totaling 709,000. Now, these numbers were clearly impacted by the benchmark revisions, as well as the updated seasonal factors. Nonetheless, the market was content to view the optically, at least, strong employment figures as a reason to increase the odds of a 50 basis point rate hike in March. Our expectations are still for a 25 basis point rate hike in March, with a continuation of the strong employment environment adding to the probability that we see a 25 basis point move in May as well. As we keep an eye on the 2% level in 10-year yields, it wasn't a surprise to see within the context of the price action that the bias was definitively toward flattening. The two- and five-year sectors really absorbed the bulk of the bearishness. If nothing else, this further reinforces one of our core calls for the year, and that is a continuation of the flattening with any re-steepening episodes simply being an opportunity to establish better placement for flatteners. This certainly has been the case for Fives 30s, which flattened as low as 41 basis points this week, which is clearly a function of the Fed story particularly given the upcoming $23 billion in new 30-year issuance on Thursday. In exploring some of the details of the employment report, the labor market participation rate increased to 62.2% versus expectations and the prior month's level of 61.9%. Now, all else being equal, we're not expecting that the labor market participation rate will get back to pre-pandemic levels. If for no other reason, then when we look at the breakdown by age cohort, what we see is that the 55 and older group left the labor market early in the pandemic and is unlikely to return anytime soon, given the run-up in asset prices and the assumption that a lot of those over 55 who exited the labor force during this period have simply brought forward their expected retirements. As labor market participation finds the new equilibrium, this will enhance the relevance of the average hourly earnings numbers, which in January outperformed, increasing seven-tenths of a percent month over month. This is relevant as we think about the prospects for inflation to become increasingly self-perpetuating, because if in fact we have achieved the new normal in terms of labor market participation, then the reported labor shortages will be more sustainable, and therefore so will the related wage gains. This would undermine the idea that there remains a subset of the potential workforce that has yet to re-engage. We'll obviously have greater insight on that over the course of the next two quarters, but for the time being, the market is content to read the events during the first week of February as supportive of the Fed's ambition to begin rate normalization
2: in March. So Ian, I was ready for a negative jobs number what happened?
0: I mean, your disposition can be negative. I appreciate that. But the reality was, given the weaker-than-expected ADP number, the market overall was anticipating a softer print for January's non-farm payrolls than we got. We actually had a very impressive showing that was also accompanied by prior revisions that added more than 700,000 jobs to the last two months on net. Now, the market responded pretty much as one would expect. We saw a sell-off with the front end of the market leading the curve, twos, threes, and fives pushed toward higher yields. The fives, thirties curve flattened as low as 41 basis points, give or take. And we saw the 190 level breached in 10-year space, which is a meaningful milestone given the proximity to next week's refunding auctions. I'd also note that within the details of the report, the unemployment rate increased slightly, but not as much as the labor market participation rate did. And we went into this event under the impression that there would be a lot of noise in this report, and that's precisely what we had. The combination of the updated seasonal factors as well as the benchmark revisions really recast the market's understanding of labor market conditions
2: at this stage in the cycle. And as just one small anecdote around the noise contained within this series, when looking at the details of the report, one of the population-adjusted figures actually showed a decline in jobs of 272,000. Now, clearly, the market's focus was on the very strong headline read in net revisions, and the flattening of the curve, exactly as you point out, Ian, certainly backs up the idea that the market is trading the headline data, not the underlying details that we got from the BLS. And as a
0: point of clarification, We're simply talking about the difference between the establishment survey and the household survey adjusted for some population differences. We all know that the market focuses on the establishment survey and the change in payrolls, but in a moment where there are so many factors distorting the headline payrolls number, it is useful to have some context
2: for what the household survey is suggesting. And right after the release, the immediate wave of questions was, well, does this mean the Fed is going to go 50 in March? I'm a bit less convinced that this single jobs report will be enough to lead the FOMC to raise Fed funds by half a percent in March not only because of some of the difficulty in interpreting the report given the revisions and seasonal adjustments, but also considering the fact that earlier this week we heard from several members of the FOMC, some of them on the hawkish side of the spectrum, come out and explicitly say that they don't favor a 50 basis point rate hike, rather a 25 basis point liftoff and more aggressive rundown of the balance sheet as opposed to delivering a shock and off 50 basis point hike. That doesn't preclude the market from pricing in a greater chance of 50 basis points, but at this stage, a 25 basis point liftoff seems to make sense, if only to continue to try and avoid that policy error. The 50 basis point rate hike camp, however, did
0: get another supporting event in the form of the Bank of England. Their decision to hike 25 basis points on Thursday, February the 3rd, was effectively split between members wanting 25 basis points and the balance advocating for a 50 basis point rate hike. Now, the Bank of England and the British economy has a remarkably different set of economic issues to deal with at the moment, and we all know the BOE is not the Fed. Nonetheless, that decision certainly emboldened those in the 50 basis point hike camp, as did the ECB's abandonment of the phrase a hike in 2022 is unlikely. Those represented pretty significant hawkish events coming from Europe and the UK, without
2: question. And there was another hawkish detail within Governor Bailey's letter released alongside the BOE decision, which was that the BOE went as far as to explicitly say they won't consider selling gilts out of their holdings until the bank rate reaches 1%. So two more 25 basis point hikes or a 50 basis point one. If it wasn't spelled differently, I'd like to sell my gilts. Wouldn't we all? And this led to renewed questions on whether the Fed will opt to take a similar path and maybe consider selling treasuries out of its holdings. Our pre-NFP survey showed over half of the respondents don't expect the Fed will actively sell either treasuries or MBS, but nonetheless, as we await the minutes from the January meeting and as the March meeting approaches, this topic will in all likelihood continue to be debated. And to be fair...
0: Our expectations are that the Fed will not sell securities out of SOMA in 2022. We will get a lot more information on this topic as the process develops and the Fed tests the market's ability to absorb the organic SOMA roll-off before even considering selling securities outright from the portfolio. We still, as a baseline assumption, don't expect that they'll ultimately go that route. But as we contemplate how quickly monetary policy expectations have changed over the course of the last four or five weeks, it's difficult to
2: really take anything off of the table in the current environment and it wasn't only a week defined by monetary policy we also got the february refunding announcement from the treasury department where the second round of coupon auction size cuts this cycle were confirmed 2s 3s 5s 10s and 30s were all brought down by 2 billion dollars apiece 7s by 3 billion dollars and 20s by 4 billion dollars which sets the market up for this coming week's $37 billion auction of 10s on Wednesday followed by $23 billion 30s on Thursday. And taking a little bit broader view after our conversation about SOMA's holdings, within the details of the presentation released by TBAC, we also saw some suggestions about what issuance might look like going forward, specifically whether or not we'll see another round of auction size declines or if a few quarters of unchanged offerings will follow in May and August. On this point, I'd err more on the side of the latter, And as we get towards the end of 2022 and early 2023, given the federal government's borrowing needs as well as the lessened reinvestment from the Fed, it's very likely that we're going to start seeing coupon auction sizes increase once again. Now, initially, to begin dealing with the balance sheet rundown, the Treasury will likely lean pretty heavily on the bill market that still has capacity to increase as a share of total debt outstanding. But once we reach the terminal velocity of balance sheet runoff, call it around $90 billion or $100 billion a month, in order to help make up for that lack of buying from the Fed, at some point in 2023 at the latest, auction sizes will be on the rise once again. There's an interesting conversation to be had
0: around the federal government's borrowing costs. We're entering a higher rate environment especially in the front end of the curve where the Treasury Department does do the bulk of their borrowing. We are also entering a period where monetary policy is going to shift from incredibly accommodative to at least incrementally, if not dramatically, less accommodative. And that has historically been a precursor to the slowing of economic activity, which implies fewer corporate tax receipts and on net, fewer wage gains. So if we find ourselves in a situation where the Treasury Department has to borrow, not only because SOMA is running off, but also because tax revenues are on the decline, just simply because of where we are in the cycle, then that's when the conversation about the carrying costs associated with the massive amount of borrowing that the treasury department has done really becomes topical because it won't be net additive to the real economy. If anything, budget cuts and fiscal austerity
2: will quickly become topical. And as for supply this week specifically, it's coming at a very pivotal time in the treasury market. We've seen 10-year yields move through 190 and back to within striking distance of a two-handle, and now that NFP has been absorbed, the way has been at least marginally cleared to price in a more substantial concession for Wednesday and Thursday's auctions. Wednesday will be the highest-yielding 10-year auction since January 2020, before COVID, And in the event we see a greater cheapening or maybe even rates just staying at current levels going into the auction itself, I would expect a strong wave of dip buying to emerge and take advantage of the first refunding of this year.
0: That's also consistent with the seasonal patterns in the treasury market, where we tend to push the bearish narrative during the first and second quarter and get a sense for the depth of dip buying interest. Now, the typical strategy of wanting to come out of the auction process long might require a bit of adjustment for the week ahead, specifically coming out of the auction process favoring flatteners resonates more than anything else, especially in 5s 30s. Because let us not forget, on Thursday, we get the January CPI data. Given the strength in the nominal wage gains that we saw from the BLS on Friday, as well as the highest oil prices since 2014, it's difficult to fade the notion that we're going to continue to see upward
2: pressure on consumer prices. And keeping with the theme of markets outside of rates specifically, we also saw a resumption of some of the wobbles witnessed earlier in the equity market this past week. A lot of that was driven by some uninspired big tech earning reports, but as we get more completely through Q4 earnings season, the performance of risk assets and what that means for financial conditions is going to play an important role in determining how the Fed ultimately wants to follow through what's now basically a foregone conclusion to be a March liftoff. Might they go in March, May, and June? Will they bring the balance sheet normalization announcement earlier? That's going to be highly dependent on the reaction of risk assets to the prospect of pretty significantly higher borrowing costs. Well, we are in an environment where good news is bad
0: for equity prices at the moment and risk assets more broadly. And the bigger question becomes, are we able to transition beyond that? and find ourselves in a situation where investors in risk assets are comfortable with the Fed's efforts on the normalization front, or do we continue to see that grind lower, as you implied might be the risk, Ben? The other aspect of the Fed's hiking cycle that I think is worth exploring a bit, is we're going into the process assuming that the backbone of rate normalization is a 25 basis point hike every quarter. But that's not to imply that the Fed couldn't go in the off-cycle meetings, which again, to your point, Ben, makes March May, and June 25 basis point moves, a very real possibility. And to a large extent, that's a lot of what's being reflected in the futures market at the moment. We're not fully pricing in 525 basis point moves this year, but we are getting pretty close.
2: Well, you know what they say, close only counts in rate strategy and estimated taxes. Oh, The week ahead
0: has three major components that we'll be focused on for determining where we see U.S. rates playing out over the course of the next several weeks. First, and this is probably the most fundamental, is the CPI print for January The present consensus is for a five-tenths of a percent increase on the headline number as well as a five-tenths of a percent increase on core. This is very consistent with the elevated levels that we have been seeing over the course of the fourth quarter, and within the details, we'll be watching for the contribution of new and used auto prices to the core series as well as OER which owner's equivalent rent effectively shelter costs. And let us not forget the fluctuations around the holidays and the impact of Omicron will make any increases in private airfares especially relevant as we see the rotation from good spending into service spending accelerating over the first quarter. The second issue on our mind for the week ahead is the refunding process itself. Our general interpretation is that the market has a tendency to price in a reasonable concession ahead of new 10s and new 30s, taking down the auctions only to rally after the fact. It goes without saying that we're in a unique environment, especially given expectations for issuance to increase in the latter part of 2022 and well into 2023. That said, we've had a pretty significant backup in rates, and all else being equal, we're anticipating a reasonable amount of dip buying interest to emerge on Wednesday, keeping in mind that for all intents and purposes, the only thing occurring on Wednesday in the treasury market is the 10-year auction. The third thing that we'll be focused on this week is the price action itself. We've been talking about the potential for 10-year yields to breach 2%, and frankly focused on the window between this month's payroll release and the March 16th FOMC meeting. Now, there's a lot of economic data and a lot of price action to occur between now and then, but given the momentum that's in place, the emphasis on supply, and the proximity of 2% 10-year yields— will be content to go with any early week sell-off, with a nod to the fact that the limiting dynamic in this case will be the performance of risk assets, most notably equity, as that does have a clear and direct impact on volatility and subsequently overall financial conditions. If nothing else, it promises to be an exciting week ahead. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the market continues digesting at the remarkably strong January payrolls report, we're reminded of the experience of two economists out bird hunting. The bird is flushed. First economist misses two feet to the right. Second the economist misses two feet to the left. And as the bird flies away, the economists high-five one another, exclaiming, we nailed it. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macro As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode so please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingan at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmo.cm.com/macrohorizons/legal.